Thank you for listening to the Calvary Church Podcast. If this ministry has been a blessing to you, would you let us know? Send an email to mystory@toledocalvary.org. We would love to hear what God is doing in your life today. I want you to know this is, this is not a complaint, what I'm about to say. It's just a statement of fact. So I'm not whining, I'm not complaining. It's just reality. It's cold out there. <laughs> Did you notice? Friday, I'm outside in a t-shirt doing, doing yard work, and yesterday I walk out of my house and I felt it in my bones. Like out of nowhere. And it's like, okay, we dodged this for a while, but it's shown up. It's cold. Here's something else that some of you might not realize. Thanksgiving is Thursday. Did you know this? Any, did it sneak up on anybody else? Anybody else? It's like Thanksgiving already? Who moved? What is this? Which means this, that Friday's Black Friday, which means tomorrow might as well be Christmas, right? It's just, it happens so fast. This is the way it works. And honestly, I'm just feeling a little bit of that stress because it's somebody you gotta go like, I gotta shop, I gotta figure out what to buy people that they can take back because they don't like it. I've gotta do all those things and it's coming quick. My December, I looked at my calendar, it's like full already. And it's just this reminder, where did the time go? My goals for 2016 are quickly becoming my goals for 2017. Have you been there? And you're watching all this happen, and I'm looking at the calendar, and I'm going, the end is near. Here it is. What do I do? What do you do when you realize that time is getting away from you? The time is winding down. This, this is one of actually the major themes that Peter has as you look through the book of First Peter. In fact, if you have your Bibles, turn with me please to First Peter chapter four, verse seven. We've been in a series where we've been walking through the book of First Peter. Last week, Pastor Keith did a great job of, of helping us walk through chapter three. This week, we're in chapter four and, uh, and are moving through. And the reason that we've called this series Exiles is because that's the title that Peter gives to the people to whom he's writing a letter. He says, you are exiles because you're living in a place that's far from your home. You won't be there forever. You're just there for a limited time because your real home is in heaven with God. Someday you'll be there with him. You are focusing on the promises in his word as you live your life and it makes a difference. I mean this is what we've seen as we've gone through this whole series. That the faith we live out will separate us from the world we live in. It's just a reality because of our convictions, because of our, our promises that we hold on to in God's word, it causes us to live our lives in a different way. Now, we, we are the light of the world, scripture says. We are to influence the world. We're to make a difference. We're to show his love and his grace with gentleness and respect. But as a result of all of this, our lives will be different, and that's why scripture says we are exiles. And so Peter writes to this church, and he says this to them. Look at this, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. He says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. 
he starts that passage of scripture with some interesting words. He says, the end of all things is near. The end is near. It has this ominous ring to it, doesn't it? Whenever I hear that, the end is near, what comes to my mind is, is a picture of someone walking around with a sign that says that. Something, something that looks just like this. You know what I'm talking about? Where you have that image, somebody repent. The end is near. They wear the sandwich board, they walk with the picket sign, and they try to promote fear in everyone who sees that. It's got this ominous tone to it. The reality is, though, that when Scripture talks about this, it's not trying to scare us. It's not trying to work us into some kind of frenzy as we think about these things and the reality that there is an end coming. Now, and we don't have a lot of time to unpack this, but here's what Scripture says. Scripture says that we live in what's called the last days. This began when Jesus came the first time. We're gonna celebrate Christmas soon and his arrival on earth. When Jesus came, that inaugurated, that kind of initialized what we referred to as the last days or the end times. And they will last until the time when Jesus comes again. And that's the period that the scripture refers to as the last days. And we believe that scripture teaches that at some point, Jesus will come again. We often refer to that as the rapture of the church, that at some point he'll come and those who are his followers, believers in Jesus Christ, will be raptured to go. It says that the dead in Christ will rise first, then those of us who are still alive and are waiting for him will be caught up in the air to meet him in the air. Take that cedar point. That sounds like a ride, doesn't it? <laughs> we'll be caught up to meet him in the air. And it says, and so will we be forever with the Lord. So that's what scripture teaches us. Jesus told us that we need to be ready. If you read through the, the, the New Testament, the book of Acts, the writings of Paul, the writings of James, the writings of John, the author of Hebrews, Jude, and Peter, all say to us, we are watching and looking for this day. The challenge, though, is that so many times when we talk about end times, it stirs us up into this frenzy. We start to sensationalize it. We talk about movies and books. We talk about what it's going to be like. We try to speculate when will the rapture happen and who is the antichrist and who's gonna go and who's not. And understand this, that the end time teaching of the New Testament does not focus on what life will be like then and there. This is important to understand. The end times teaching the New Testament does not focus on what life will be like then and there. We usually do. We talk about when will it happen. Then, when we get there, what will it be like? Although scripture gives us hints to all these things, talks about the rapture, talks about heaven, talks about the millennium, talks about the tribulation. Although scripture talks about these things, the focus is never on the then and there. The focus of the New Testament is how we should live here and now because the end is near. We have hope in the then and there, but every time you see this in scripture, the reason that an author says to you the end is near is because he wants it to affect the way you live here and now. And this is Peter's point. He's saying, look, I'm telling you the end is near. What that means is that time is short. You're limited in how much time you have. And if that's the case, if Jesus is coming back and the church believed 2,000 years ago that he's coming back, do we believe today that he's coming back? Yeah. It's been a long time, hasn't it? You still think he's coming back? Yeah. Scripture says that with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day, right? 
So understand this, if Jesus has been gone from earth 2,000 years, what does that mean in heaven? A couple days. So we get all stressed out, he's never coming back. He's like, I've only been gone a couple of days. It's like that kid in the grocery store, right? You go in the grocery store and you're moving as fast as you can to move and that little guy in your cart starts yelling, we've been in here forever. It's not forever, we just got through the frozen stuff. At some point, he's coming back, and we look for that. We wait for that. Scripture says we long for his appearing. But until then, he says, look, the end is near. Life's short. What do you do? I want to give to you five things life is too short for. And this is Peter's point. He says, look, if the end is near, and then for the next four verses, he gives us some of the most practical teaching in 1 Peter. Not stuff about the rapture, not stuff about end times. He says, look, if the end is near, then it should affect the way that you're living right now. And so I want to give you five things that life is too short for. We're going to look at two of them today. We're going to look at the other three next week. Five things that life is too short for. Here's the first one. Number one, life is too short to not think clearly. Life is too short to not think clearly. Look what Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. He says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, and remember when we see therefore, we ask ourselves the question, what is it? Okay, he says, therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. It's interesting, that phrase, alert and of sober mind, is something that Peter uses repeatedly. He uses it in chapter one, he uses it here in chapter four. We'll see in just a moment that he uses it again when we get to chapter five. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I think when we were in chapter one, and so I thought to myself, well maybe I'll skip this, maybe we don't need to hit this again. And then I just felt like, well if Peter repeated it, maybe it's important enough for us to repeat as well. What does he mean when he talks about this? The idea is, he says, life is too short for you to not think clearly. We start with the idea that he tells us that we need to be alert, that we need to be careful, that we do not let our guard down, but that we stay in a place of just, of diligence, of vigilance, that we're watching. I think the the opposite of this idea of staying alert was me when I played Little League. When I played Little League, I was that kid. Coach said, we don't know what to do with Chad, so let's put him in the outfield. And as I was in the outfield and nothing was happening, guess what I found? Dandelions. And what do you do? You start, you start just, you know, you're not paying attention. You're looking at stuff. The other game that's over there, you're watching. You start pulling the dandelions. And as soon as you start doing that, what happens? Ball comes your way. The one time in nine innings when you're not paying attention. Peter says, be alert. Don't let your guard down. Why? Well, he says it in chapter five, verse eight. Look at what he says here. First Peter chapter five, verse eight. He says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Why are we alert? Because if we don't be, we're gonna find ourselves sorry. When we drop our spiritual guard, we set ourselves up for spiritual defeat. When we drop our spiritual guard, we set ourselves up for spiritual defeat. We have an enemy who's out to get us. This is a theme all throughout 1 Peter, and spiritual effectiveness requires that we stay alert. So he says to them, I want you to be alert, and then he says, I want you to be of sober mind. That's a really interesting analogy that he uses there. 
In fact, the truth is, if you go back to the original Greek, the word mind isn't really there. That's kind of added to help us to understand what he means. He just says, I want you to be sober. Here's what he's saying to them. He says, don't think like you're drunk. I want you to be of sober mind. I want you to think clearly. Don't think in a way that you're distracted, that you're caught off guard, that you're slow to respond. I want you to think soberly. This is important, and we, we kind of landed here several weeks ago when we talked about holiness. You see, a lack of holiness leads to a warped perception of God. And if I'm not thinking clearly about life, about God, the, re- the realities, the ramifications of that are, are destructive. One of the big things that there's a push for, and you see it in our culture quite a bit, is to do everything we can to stop drunk driving. There's awareness campaigns, and there's things that we go through to try to limit that. And if you get caught driving drunk, there's stiff penalties that come with that. Why? Because it's incredibly dangerous. If someone is driving while they're impaired by alcohol, it puts them in a place where their response time is down, they don't make wise decisions, and they are a detriment not only to themselves, but in particular to those around them. So that's why we say, do not drive drunk. Peter is saying, do not think drunk. Do not live drunk. You need to think in a way where you're thinking clearly about life because when you're not thinking clearly, when you're not sober-minded, your response time is impaired. Your decisions are not wise. You do things that you will regret later. So Peter says to them, at some point, you have to realize, I want you to be alert and be of a sober mind. Why? It's interesting what he says. He says, be alert and of sober mind, so you may pray. Isn't that interesting? He takes it to the point where he says, the reason I want you to be on your guard, the reason I want you to think clearly, is so you may pray. The reason is that the purpose of a clear mind is so you can communicate with God. When your mind is clear, then you can hear God more clearly. When our minds are clear, we can clearly communicate with God. Have you, have you ever seen, I don't know, maybe you've done an exercise like this or you've seen it somewhere, seen it on TV, where someone gets blindfolded and they're set in front of like an obstacle course or someplace where they have to go and find something and they're blindfolded and the only way they can know where they're going is to listen to the voice of a caller. You ever seen something like that? And so they're blindfolded and they're standing there and somebody says, okay, now take, take three steps forward and then what I need you to do is kind of shift to your left just a little bit. Now reach, reach out there in front of you and you're doing all these things while you can't see it. And you have to rely on someone else's voice to guide you. Isn't that in many ways a good analogy of our relationship with God? Because in so many ways there's things in life that we can't see, we don't understand. We might not be able to make the right decisions and the only way we're gonna be able to do it is if we can clearly hear his voice. But we can't clearly hear his voice if we're not thinking clearly. So Peter says, look, if you're gonna move forward and be effective in life, you need to be alert. You need to be of a sober mind because when our minds are clear, we can clearly communicate with God. The reason this is so important is because some of you aren't thinking clearly. There's places in your lives where you know that your thinking is clouded. You don't have peace. You've lost joy. You don't have rest. There's there's no clarity that's there. 
And maybe the reason that you're not experiencing that, that peace that you long for, or that, that clarity that you'd like, is because you're not thinking clearly the way that scripture would encourage you to. So what clouds are thinking? What are the things that have a tendency to kind of throw that off? Well, our thinking becomes clouded when we lose focus of our priorities. Our thinking becomes clouded when we lose focus of our priorities. When we start putting things in places of priority in our lives where they really don't belong. And this, this can be so easily done. And what happens is we begin to think about things that we either think we want or that we think they're important. And at some point we lose focus of what really matters. I would encourage you, this is easy to do during the holiday season. Because during this time, let's say the next six weeks or so, Thanksgiving through New Year's, we've got all these different demands on us, all these different things. And we start thinking about the celebration in family celebration instead of the family in family celebration and we lose sight of those things that really matter and are the most important. We need to consider what are the things that are making my priorities clouded? Is it a person, is it money, success, work, pleasure? What's scripture say? Scripture says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. We have to get our priorities straight. The problem is, a lot of times, I'll give up valuable real estate in my brain to things that really aren't a priority. And when my priorities are out of focus, my thinking becomes clouded. Another way that this happens is our thinking becomes clouded when we focus on our anxieties. Our thinking becomes clouded when we focus on our anxieties. Those things that seem to come, and and again, and I I like this analogy, they take up valuable real estate in our brains. If you think about this, I've only got so much space in here, and I'm finding that it's more and more limited all the time. Anybody else? So I have valuable real estate, and there's things that want to come in and set up camp. They want to take over space in my brain, and they really shouldn't, and those anxieties seem to drive their way in. It's not that they're not things that we should think about, but we shouldn't let them take the precedent that they do, the the financial challenges, physical illness, family difficulties. First Peter chapter five, verse seven helps us with this. It says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So Peter says, when your minds are alert and sober, When you're thinking clearly, it allows you to be in a point where your priorities and your anxieties do not cloud your mind. But the trick is then, how do I deal with my priorities and my anxiety? Watch this, because this is fascinating to me. Peter says, be alert and sober so you may pray. So how do I stay alert and sober? How do I deal with my priorities? It says, seek first the kingdom of God, Matthew 6, 33. How do I deal with my anxieties? Cast all your cares on the Lord, 1 Peter 5, 7. Do you see this? And this is a really cool thing, that if I want to think in a way that's alert and sober, then I need to take those things that keep my mind clouded, and I need to give them to God. I need to pray. And so when I pray, my mind becomes alert and sober. And then when I'm alert and sober, it helps me to pray. And so when I pray, I can be alert and sober. And when I'm alert and sober, then it helps me to pray. And when I, you get it? There's this cycle that we see here, that when we're thinking clearly, it helps us to be in a place where we can move forward in life. A prayerful life leads to a clarity of thought. A prayerful life 
will lead to a clarity of thought. Now when I say a prayerful life, I don't, I don't necessarily mean, we've talked about this before, that before you walk out of your bedroom in the morning, you need to spend six hours on your knees. If God leads you to do that, then, then do it. But a prayerful life is a life where I walk through my day in communication with God. God, God, what would you have me to do here? God, how do you feel about this? God, thanks for this opportunity. God, help me to love this person. But as I go through those moments, I'm in constant communication with him because as I pray, especially about my priorities and my anxieties, it helps me to be alert and to think clearly, which then helps me to be more focused on him. I, my eyes are not good. I can't see well without either contacts or glasses. And so most of the time I wear my contacts, but, but a lot of times I will wear my glasses around the house. And when I do, what I've found is I must mess with those things all the time. Because I don't have them on very long, and all of a sudden I go, man, these things are nasty. And you look at them and you wonder, who put all these smudges on my glasses? And I have to take them, and I have to clean them off, put them back on again, and it's just a matter of time until there's smudges on them again. Why? It's life. Those things happen. And the same thing happens in our life, that that the events of life, the distractions, the challenges, they come our way and they smudge our life and we need to constantly go, how do I keep myself thinking clearly? And sometimes, maybe this is a good confession for all of us, sometimes I just don't wanna pray. Sometimes I I just don't have that desire to be in constant communication with God. And let me encourage you, when my desire for God goes down, it's a good indicator that something might be up. When my desire for God goes down, it's a pretty good indicator that something might be up. Because an apathy towards God is a sign of cloudy thinking. And so if I find that I'm in a place where I'm really not desiring God, I'm not that concerned about what he thinks, I'm not really pulling him in to the everyday parts of my life, then that might be a good indication that my thinking is not real clear right now. This might not be the best time for me to make a big decision. This might not be the best time for me to to respond to this situation. Maybe what I need to do is get my thinking clear first by seeking him and then allowing him to help me to think clearly. Why is this so important? Because life's too short to not think clearly. Peter starts here. He says to them, the end is near. As a result, be alert and sober-minded so you can pray, make sure you're thinking clearly. Then we get to the second thing, verse eight. The second thing that Peter says to us here is this, number two, life is too short to hold a grudge. Life is too short to hold a grudge. Okay, reality is you're gonna get hurt. You're gonna be done wrong. There's gonna be people that will offend you. And at some point, somebody might even respond to you in a certain way that gives you the feeling that they say, you're dead to me. This happened a week ago to many users of Facebook. Did anybody see this? Facebook, a week ago Friday, had to issue an apology because they had a glitch in their system. And on many people's pages on Facebook, right at the very top, they put this memorial quote that basically said, this person has passed away. This is a wonderful opportunity for you to express your condolences and your your memories for this person. These are people who weren't dead, including Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg. (laughs) 
The internet said to Zuckerberg, you're dead to us. Facebook had to go back and fix this. But it's interesting, the reality is these things happen to us in life. We get ridiculed in the workplace. There's disagreement with family. There's arguments over politics. Anybody heard any arguments over politics? You're not fitting in at school, you're betrayed by a friend, you're wounded by a spouse, or the internet says to you, you're dead to me. There are times when we get hurt. So what do you do when you get done wrong? First Peter chapter five, verse eight. Peter says this, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. This is fascinating to me because what did he just say to them? He just said, look, the end is near. This is it. We are watching the end of the world. He does not say arm yourself. He does not say put food in your basement. He does not say start reading books about the rapture. He says, above all, more important than anything else, if the end is near, do you know what you should do? Love each other. Isn't that interesting? that that's the priority. That for him is the most important thing. He says, love each other deeply. Why? Because in God's design for everything, the fundamental thing, the motivating force is love. So let's talk about this for a moment. Kind of let this passage speak to us. One of the things that we see here really clearly is this, that real love is not an emotion, but a decision. Real love is not an emotion, but a decision. See, Peter gives a command. He says, I want you to love each other deeply. He's not just talking about how you feel. He's saying, look, love is a conscious choice. I have to decide how will I respond to a situation or a person with hate, with prejudice, with vengeance, with irritation, with a sense of superiority. Will I hold a grudge or will I love them? And the truth is love isn't easy. It makes you vulnerable. It's, it's counterintuitive. It means I've got to take my eyes off of myself, put them on someone else, and this may cost me something. The truth is, there's times when it's easy to love. I mean, think about it. The couple on their honeymoon, strolling down the beach, hand in hand at sunset. It's easy to love then, right? It's easy. The guys that are sitting around watching the football game and Their team scores a touchdown and they stand up, start jumping around, high-fiving each other and yelling, I love you, man. That moment. Even when you you reach out and and you serve someone who's who's maybe less fortunate than you are and you express love, those moments are easy to love. But that's not what you always experience. How about that couple that gets back from the honeymoon and then they have to extend forgiveness to one another because of words that are spoken that probably never should have been. Or when you have to put up with that one guy whose every word seems to just get on your nerves. Or when you're dealing with people who belittle and oppose you, and you try to do it in the way that Peter says with gentleness and respect. See, it's easy to love sometimes, but real love is expressed in moments of conflict. Get right down to it. Real love is expressed in moments of conflict. 
can be easy for us to love those who love us back or to love in the easy times, but this verse says that we're supposed to love deeply. We choose to do this. How do we do it in moments of conflict? And this might be helpful for some of us before we get to the dinner table on Thursday. Love is a decision that is made before, during, and after an offense. Love is a decision. It's a choice you have to make before, during, and after the offense. How do, you, how do you love before? Well, maybe when you're going into a difficult situation, it's deciding beforehand that you will not bring up the past. It's asking the Holy Spirit to give you the strength to respond in the right way when you face that irritating person. Can I get an amen? Some of you know some irritating people. It's asking God to help you in that situation, deciding that when you know you're gonna get in that moment, you're gonna go the way that's the way of love and that's selfless. You have to choose to love before you ever even get there. That you're gonna choose forgiveness and not, not frustration. And then you have to love that person during that conflict, during that offense, that you don't let, and I think this is really important, that you don't let the emotion of the moment be the thing that determines the memory. See, there's two things, there's a moment in time, and then there's the memory you hold on to. And too many times I let the emotion of the moment determine my response instead of thinking about what will the memory be of this long term. I don't want my frustration in the moment to lead to a frustrating memory. I would rather choose love in this moment so that for myself and for my loved ones, they have a memory that's one of love and not frustration. Does that make sense? But I have to choose to do that during the offense. I have to choose to love even in the midst of that tense conversation or that difficult interaction or when that family member who always acts that way begins to act that way. I have to love then. And I have to love after. That I choose to embrace the fact that life's too short to hold a grudge. That I'm willing to repent and admit my own failures. And this is huge. That I'm willing to be the one to take the first step toward reconciliation. Peter says, I want you to love each other deeply. Why? He says, because love covers over a multitude of sins. That's a really interesting picture. He says, love covers over a multitude of sins. Not just one sin, love covers over a whole heaping pile of sins. That phrase isn't actually original to Peter. He, he's kind of quoting here a passage from the Old Testament. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12 says this. Hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. The message version of the Bible translates that same passage this way. Proverbs 10, 12 in the message. Hatred starts fights, but love pulls a quilt over the bickering. Love pulls a quilt over the bickering. Isn't that an interesting picture? For some of you, you need to take grandma's quilt and cover up grandma's bickering, right? Now look, when I was originally working on this message and going through the passage, verses seven through 11 that we read earlier, there were five things there that uh, we were gonna just kinda push through today that we were gonna talk about life's too short for. We're gonna hit the other three next week because when I got to this one, that life's too short to hold a grudge, I just felt like the Holy Spirit said, stop on this one. You need to stay here for a moment. Because some of you have some things in your life where right now 
it would be so helpful if you'd allow the Holy Spirit to begin to just speak to you about those things. For some of us, there are things that, that might even be foolish that we've just been holding on to for so long. Frustrations with family, betrayal by friends, disappointment in life, and we hold on to that thing and it's got the best of us. For some of us, the reality is you have been wounded really, really deeply. And this moment is a moment where the Holy Spirit can speak to your heart about this. See, Peter doesn't pull any punches here. He says, look, in life, you will have offense. Sometimes it's gonna come from persecution outside the church. Sometimes it's gonna come from disappointment inside the church. He says, but you will have these times. What are you gonna do when you face this conflict? He says, if the end is near and life's so short, you need to love each other deeply. Why? Because love will cover over a multitude of sins. And some of you have been sinned against. You've done wrong. It has, it, you've been done wrong. It has led to uncomfortable relationships, places where you don't speak to each other. Maybe some of you have a dread for the holidays and what's ahead. Maybe you've even been hurt inside a church. What do you do in those moments? How does love cover over a multitude of sins? Well, I think we have to start with the fact that real love chooses forgiveness over grudges. Real love will choose forgiveness over grudges. Forgiveness is a tough thing, but it's so important. Here's why. One reason is because forgiveness is a spiritual thing. There's a spiritual reality that comes with this. Look at what Jesus said. Matthew chapter six, verse 14. He says, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. Ouch. This is important, right? My response in forgiveness has a direct correlation to God's ability to forgive me as well. So forgiveness is a spiritual thing. Beyond that, forgiveness is also this continual thing. There's there's no shelf life or expiration date. Look what Jesus said, Luke chapter 17, verse three. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back saying to you, I repent, you must forgive them. Cool, but on the eighth time, you're out of (laughs) here. Not the point. Jesus saying, stop counting. It's not the point. Ultimately, choosing to love Overholding a grudge is an incredibly practical thing. When Paul had to take time and define what love is, look at what he said, 1 Corinthians 13, five, love does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Yeah, but I do. Got it right here and a note on my phone. Every time she every time he, I keep track of that. It's easy for us to do that. It's not what love does. It's not what forgiveness does. Yeah, maybe I'm wronged, but it doesn't mean no good to go back and rehearse that over and over and over again. It only destroys something powerful within me. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 
See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. If you let that grudge grow inside of you, it becomes a bitter root that leaves a bad taste in your mouth and it defiles, it destroys, it hurts other people as well. This is why Peter says, I want you to love each other deeply, even in the places where you are in the right and they are in the wrong. Why? Because love covers over a multitude of sins. One last thought about this. And, and, and stick with me for just a moment. Real love covers during construction. Real love covers even during construction. See, that word love is powerful. And that word cover is powerful. Because the idea behind it is that you take something that's there and then you cover it up with something else. You let something else go over top of it. You let something else be more important than that. Now understand what he's saying here. Love does not atone or excuse the sins of others. Your love does not atone for. What what I mean by that is just because you love someone, that doesn't mean that their sins are forgiven. The only way for you to receive forgiveness of sins is through a personal relationship with with Jesus Christ. So your love doesn't atone for their sins, nor does it excuse their sins. We're not saying that at some point you don't say, look, what you did was wrong, or what's going on in our relationship is not healthy. The reality is there are times for that sense of almost confrontation. Look at what James says. James chapter five, verse 20. says, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a, have you heard this before? (laughs) a multitude of sins. Look, when you help someone to walk through that challenge in their life, you are helping them to cover over that multitude of sins. There have to be times when we're willing to have challenging conversations. So when we say cover over, that's a powerful principle. It's important for us to capture this. And understand this, there's a difference between cover over and cover up, isn't there? When I cover up, It's typically something I'm trying to do to hide something from you. Something I don't want you to know or want you to see. I do it for myself. But when I cover over, I take a look at something that's there and and I decide that, that what needs to happen in the future is more important than what happened in the past. And when I cover over, that's usually something that I do not for myself but for someone else. There's a difference that's in that, but it's this powerful principle that there's times when we just need to choose to cover over. Here's one key way to do this. Proverbs chapter 17, verse nine. Whoever would foster love covers over an offense, but whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. There's times when I just need to say, let it go. I'm not encouraging you to be foolish or ignorant. Look, as we go through life, we learn who we can trust and how much we can trust them, right? But we don't have to keep going back to that thing. We don't have to keep picking that scab. Love allows us to cover over what otherwise would be an eyesore. It doesn't have to be the the first thing that we see. Look, if you live in your house for any season of time, and you're active in any way, there's gonna be nicks and scratches and marks on your walls. Isn't that true? Just have your kids or grandkids over. It's all over. The end is near, right? 
And when we see those things, we can get frustrated, but at some point we just go, look, I gotta, I gotta do something about this. This is just a fact of life. These things happen. So at some point, you have to respond. You look at things and say, okay, it's time to do something about this. It's time to move the furniture. Let's buy a rug. Let's hang a picture there. Look, I can take you to all kinds of spots in this building where there are marks and things that we don't want you to see, so we put a couch in front of it, okay? It's just the reality of life. If you, if you were to go to my house, and you walk in the front door, as soon as you walk in the front door, just kind of shift to the right, and the stairway to go upstairs is right there. Just go right up the stairs. Well, one day we were coming down the stairs, and we had something big, heavy, we were trying to carry it down, and when we got to the bottom, we kind of lost control of moving that, and took the, the bottom of this big, heavy thing and ran it right into the wall, and left this big old hole that was right there. It's kind of right in the drywall. And every time you go up the stairs, every time you go down the stairs, what's the thing that catches your eye? hole that's right there. You feel guilt, you feel frustration, you feel anger, you feel disappointment. Your eye goes to that every time and every time until finally we just said, look, I'm sick of looking at that hole. I would like to do something about this. I need to cover over that multitude of sin. And what do you do in those moments? There are times, friends, when you've just gotta grab the tools, okay? Get the spackling, get the putty knife, just fill in that hole, paint it over. Will you always know it's there? Probably. But are you gonna think about it every time you go by? No, because at some point, you've covered it over and it's not the most important thing in the hole, in the wall, or the hole in your relationship anymore. Because love will cover over a multitude of sins. This is critically important. And in a culture right now that is so focused on racism and economic division and immigration and, and the differences that are in us, wouldn't it be great if the people of God didn't separate on what made us disagree, but on loving other people? Wouldn't love cover over a multitude of sins? How powerful would that be? You know how it happens? It's only gonna happen through the power and the example and the love and the blood of Jesus Christ at work in our lives. Colossians chapter three, verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. Bear with each other and forgive one another. Bear with each other and forgive one another. You'll thank me for this on Thursday. Bear with each other <laughs> and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Yeah, but uh, Chad, I got done wrong. I mean, I got done wrong. And we've talked about it, and look, they, they're not repenting. They're not changing. In fact, they won't even admit. It's, it's all on me. It's, it's not on them. They won't even admit that anything happened here. What do I do? Because this, this thing's still broken. You want me to cover it over? Yeah, I don't. Peter does. God does. 
He says, love covers over a multitude of sins. Yeah, but it's still broken. It's not fixed yet. What do I do? Because it's, it's not fixed yet. Have you ever been like to the mall or a shopping center or someplace where, where when you walk, you're, you're walking by and there's a store that kind of used to be there, but it's not there anymore. And they're inside and they're renovating it to make it a new store. And so as you walk by, they don't want you to see what's going on inside of there because it's messy and it's dirty and it's probably a little unsafe and doesn't look good. So on the outside of it, they put a big old wall of plywood, right? Not very pretty. But there's a sticker on it that says, this is coming soon, under construction. Have you ever seen that? If, if, if some of you may remember the, the building on Glendale, our, our former building, and there was, there was a time back in 2008, 2009 when we renovated, there was a, was a hospitality room that we had and we kind of knocked some walls out and, and opened it all up and turned it into kind of a gathering space, a cafe kind of space. And, and during the time that all that messy construction was happening, the contractors went in and they built a big old plywood wall that kind of wrapped all around that corner of the building right out in the middle of our atrium. It wasn't pretty, but it was up there to say, look, there's something that's going on on the other side of this. And so until it's fixed, while there's construction that's happening, we're gonna cover this over because that's the better thing that's there right now. It's not that it's fixed. It's not that it's perfect. That's in process. And for some of you, there's things in your relationships, there's painful parts, there's things that are at work, and maybe you've even done everything that you can do, and now it's in God's hands, and you say, look, it's not fixed. What do I do with this? Until something can be fixed, love says it can be covered. It's not the most important thing. It's not the first thing that I have to see. Until it can be fixed, love says it can be covered. So let me, let me give you a little suggestion. Before you sit down to dinner on Thursday for Thanksgiving, before you interact with that cousin or aunt or uncle that you hope doesn't make it to Thanksgiving, <laughs> I didn't mean like I did attend, not like, you know, that's not what I meant. <laughs> it didn't come out the right way. Let me give you a little encouragement. We, we use this sign around here from time to time. Whenever we're, we're doing something that may be kind of messy or we're renovating a, a part of the building or working on something, we, we put this little sign out in the hallway that helps us to keep focus. It says, um, excuse our mess, vision is becoming reality. Catchy, isn't it? So it's a way to say, look, this, this is not fixed right now. It's broken, but it's gonna get better. Until then, we're gonna cover it with this. Some of you need to find the seat that that certain person is sitting at on Thursday and put a banner just like this there. Not physically, mind you, in your mind. This is mine, I'll be using it Thursday. You'll have to get your own. Actually, okay, my family goes to church here. And so, um, it was just an analogy, it's just an analogy. Until it can be fixed, love says it can be covered. And so I'm gonna invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. Peter says the end is near. So it's time for you to think clearly and life's too short to hold a grudge. And I don't know what you're up against and I don't know what things look like for you. But if you would just in all honesty say, God, there's some things that I need your love to help me cover over. I want to pray for you. So whether you're watching this on a screen somewhere or maybe you're in auditorium too or maybe you're sitting right here in this room right now and 
you'd say, God, there's, there's maybe this heaping pile of things that I need to cover over. Would you help me by your love? Life's too short to hold a grudge. Would you help me to cover it in your love? If that's you, would you just raise a hand? I want to pray with you today. God, there's things I got to cover. Lord, I need your help. Raise your hand, put it right back down. God, would you help me? Life's too short. I need your help to cover over a multitude of sins. Lord, we thank you for your word that speaks to us, that encourages us, that challenges us. It helps us to know how we can live here and now. Lord, would you help our minds to think clearly? And Lord, in this moment, would you help us by your Holy Spirit to let your love cover over a multitude of sins. Lord, there's things in our lives that are broken. And Holy Spirit, we believe that you're in the the business of restoration. But until they can be fixed, may we use your love to cover them. And we pray your blessing on this week ahead. Lord, may may our thanksgiving with friends and family be a time where you're glorified, where people see your love in our lives. Lord, we even pray and believe that you are gonna, through this next week, use us to bring people to know the saving power of Jesus Christ. Now, Lord, as we go from here, we ask that you go with us. Would you send us out with your special favor and your wonderful peace? In Jesus' name, amen.